Chapter Three of The Ghost of Gear House. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Ghost of Gear House by Charles Willing Beale. Chapter Three. When Ah Ben had finished his coffee, the three retired to the great entrance hall, where the fire was burning brightly and the hanging lamp lending its uncertain aid to the illumination of the curious old apartment. Ah Ben produced a couple of long-stemmed pipes, one of which he handed to Paul, with a great leather pouch of leaf tobacco, which he showed his guest how to prepare for smoking. They seated themselves in the pew before the fire, Dorothy nearest the hearth, while Paul placed himself upon the lounge opposite. A great stillness pervaded the house, and Mr. Henley could not help wondering again if there were not other members of the establishment. Dorothy was staring into the fire, her thoughts far away, while Ah Ben smoked his pipe in silence. "'Perhaps they have theories about digestion,' Paul reflected, while he pulled at his long T.T. stem and watched the meditative couple before him. The firelight played upon Ah Ben's white mustache and swarthy features, and the colored handkerchief upon his head, and set the long thin fingers all of a tremble upon the pipe stem, as if manipulating the stops of a flute. It danced over Dorothy's gown in a dazzling sheen of white, and flashed upon her jeweled hands in colored sparks of green and gold and purple and red and lit up her face and hair with the soft warm tints of a Rubens. Such a picture did the twain combine to make. They looked indeed as if they might have stepped from the canvas of some old master and come for a brief season to taste the joys of flesh and blood and life. The outer regions of the hall were in darkness, the ancient lamp barely revealing the oddities of brush, chisel, and structure that combined to make the most remarkable living room that Henley had ever seen. The decaying portraits, the singular carvings and peculiar furniture, now only revealed themselves by suggestion in the faint illumination of the lamp and uncertain flicker of the fire. But what were these people, Dorothy and Ah Ben, to each other? It was out of the question that they could be husband and wife. It seemed equally so that they could be father and daughter. Paul searched the faces of each for traces of similarity, but there were none. Their manner to each other, the girl's mode of addressing the man, all indicated the absence of kinship. Yes, Henley felt quite certain that Ah Ben and Dorothy Gear were neither related nor connected, and that they were never likely to become so. From time to time the old man would arise to mend the fire, and a quiet conversation upon indifferent topics ensued, Dorothy uttering a few words occasionally, in a dreamy voice, with her head propped upon a cushion in the corner. At last she failed to answer when spoken to. Evidently she had fallen asleep. "'My daughter, you need rest,' said Ah Ben gently and at the same moment a clock upon the stairs began striking eleven. Dorothy opened her eyes and looked around. "'I must have fallen asleep!' she exclaimed quite naively. 
she bade them each good night and then started up the uncanny stairs. Near the top she paused in the darkness, and looking over the balustrade into the hall below seemed to be waiting. Perhaps she was not so completely in the shadow as she imagined, and perhaps Paul did not see aright, but through the gloom he thought he caught the flash of a diamond as it moved toward her lips and away again. If tempted to return the salute, his better judgment prevailed, and while holding the stem of his pipe in his right hand, pressed the tobacco firmly into the bowl with his left. A troublesome thought presented itself. Could this girl have entered into any kind of entanglement with his namesake which would have demanded a tenderer attitude than he had assumed toward her? Had he neglected opportunities and failed to avail himself of privileges which he had unknowingly inherited? For an instant the thought disturbed Mr. Henley's equilibrium, but a moment's reflection convinced him that the idea was not worth considering. Whatever it was he had seen upon the stairs he knew was not intended for his eyes, even if it had been meant for himself. "'Shall we smoke another pipe?' said Ah Ben. "'I'm something of an owl myself, and shall sit here for quite a while before retiring.' Paul was glad of the opportunity and accepted with alacrity. He hoped in the quiet of a midnight conversation to discover something about this peculiar man and his home. Perhaps he should also learn something of the girl, her strange life, and the gears. "'We may not be so comfortable as we would be in our beds,' continued the elder man, "'but there is a certain comfort in discomfort which ought not to be undervalued. Sleep, to be enjoyed, should be discouraged rather than courted.' "'Yes,' answered Paul. "'I believe Shakespeare has told us something about it "'in his famous soliloquy on that subject.' "'True,' replied Aben. "'And I suppose there is no one living "'who has not felt the delusion of comfort. "'Like many other material blessings, "'it is to be had only in pills.' "'Aben had stretched his legs out toward the hearth.' and while passing his hand across his withered cheek had closed his eyes in reverie. The dim and uncertain shadows made the room seem like some vast cavern, whose walls were mythical and whose recesses unexplored. The lamp had expired to a single spark, and there was nothing to reveal their presence to each other except the red glow from the embers. No said the man, continuing to speak with his eyes still closed. Luxury is not necessary to a man's happiness, although he has persuaded himself that it is so. Perhaps not, Paul admitted, although I contend that a certain amount of comfort is. By no means. There was never a greater fallacy, although I am free to admit that under certain conditions it may conduce to that end. But tell me, have you never seen one happy amid the greatest physical privations? Not absolutely. No, not absolutely. The absolute does not belong to the finite. I refer to what most men would consider happiness. 
Oh, if you're talking about saints, they're outside my experience. A faint smile played over Ah Ben's face as he answered, Saints, my dear sir, are no more to me than to you. Have you ever seen a prize fight? Oh, yes, several. Do you not believe that the winner of a prize fight, even when covered with bruises and suffering in every bone of his body, is happier at the moment of victory than he was the previous morning while lying comfortably in his bed? I dare say, but now you're speaking of happiness, suggested Ah Ben, and if you will pardon me for saying so, for possibly I may have thought more upon this subject than you have, I can tell you the one essential which lies at the root of all happiness, without which it can never be acquired, but with which it is certain to follow. "'And what is that?' inquired Paul with interest. "'Power,' said Ah Ben, with an assurance that left no doubt of the conviction of the speaker. "'I suppose that is a kind of stepping-stone to contentment.' answered Paul reflectively. Precisely. For no man who lacks the power to accomplish his desires can know contentment. But contentment is transitory and rests upon power. Power alone is the cornerstone of happiness. Do you really believe that? Paul inquired, half incredulously. I know it. With me it is not a matter of speculation, it is a matter of knowledge. Then let me ask you why it is that the greatest power in the world, which is undoubtedly money, so often fails of this end. Ah Ben refilled his pipe, then raked a coal out of the fire with the bowl and pressed it firmly down upon the tobacco, and then said reflectively, "'You are mistaken.' Money does confer happiness to the full limit of its power, but this limit is quickly reached. First, because man's ambitions and desires grow faster than his wealth, or reach out into channels that wealth can never compass. Or, and principally, because wealth is an impersonal power and not a direct one. Give the earth to a single man, and it would never enable him to change his appearance or alter one of his mental characteristics, nor to do one single thing he could not have accomplished before, it giving him the power to make others do his will. And so long as his will is not beyond the power of others to do, he is to that extent happy. But to be really happy, a man must have personal power. Wealth is not power. Power is lodged in the individuality. "'I don't know whether I quite understand you,' said Paul. Ah Ben looked at him searchingly with his luminous, deep-set eyes. "'Can gold restore an idiot's mind?' he inquired. "'Or a cripple the use of his limbs? "'Would a mountain of gold add one iota to the power of your soul?' and yet it is gold that men have labored for since the earth was made. Could they once understand its real limitations? What a different planet we should have! That is all very well, 
answered Henley. But this personal power of which you speak is born in a man, and is not to be acquired by anything he can do. Whereas the battle for wealth can be fought in a field open to all. There again I must beg to differ from you, said Aben. There is a law for the acquirement of this soul power which is as fixed and certain as the law of gravitation, and when a man has once gained it, he has no more use for worldly wealth than he has for the drainings of a sewer. Do you mean to say that by a course of life? I do, and it is this. Self-control is the law of psychic power. Then, according to your theory, the better mastery a man has over himself, the more he can accomplish and the greater his happiness? I go still further, the old man continued. I claim that self-control is the only source of happiness, and that he who can control his body, and by this I mean his eyes, his nerves, his tongue, his appetites and passions, can control other men, but he who is master of his mind, his thoughts, his desires, his emotions, has the world in a sling. Such a man is all-powerful. There is nothing he cannot accomplish. There is no force that can stand against him. The fire had died out, save for a few glowing embers, but Aben's singular face seemed to draw unto itself what light there was, and to hold Henley's eyes in a kind of mesmeric fascination. He had put off going to bed for the sole purpose of gaining some knowledge of the house and its inmates, and yet now, with apparently nothing to hinder his investigations, he felt an unaccountable diffidence about making the inquiries. An impression that the man was a mind-reader had doubtless increased this embarrassment, and yet he had had no evidence of this kind, nor anything to indicate such a fact beyond the keen, penetrating power of those marvelous eyes. Paul felt that there was a mental chasm, deep and wide and impassable, that yawned between him and the strange individual before him. Such stupendous power of will as lodged within that brain could sport with the forces of nature, suspend or reverse the action of law, disintegrate matter, or create it. At least such was the impression which Mr. Henley had received. It was past midnight before a movement was made for bed, and when Aben brought a lighted candle, inquiring if everything in the bedchamber had been satisfactory, Paul was about to reply in the affirmative when he suddenly remembered the staircase in the closet. "'I was about to forget,' he said, "'but would you mind explaining the object of a very peculiar staircase I discovered in the closet of my room?' "'This house is old,' Aben replied simply. It was built when the state was a colony and full of Indians. The stairway communicating with the lower floor was doubtless intended as a means of escape. I had not thought of this annoying you, but can readily see how it might. You shall be removed to another room at once. Removed? exclaimed Paul. My dear sir, I had no intention of making such a suggestion. 
The most I thought of asking for was a bolt for the door, or scuttle. But since your explanation, I do not wish either. They bade each other good night, and Paul undertook to find his room alone, declining Ah Ben's offer to accompany him. But the house was full of strange passages and unexpected stairways, making the task more difficult than he had expected. After wandering about, he found himself stopped by a dead wall, at least so it looked, but suddenly directly before him stood Ah Ben. "'I thought you might need my assistance,' he said quietly, and then, without appearing to notice Henley's astonishment, led the way to his room. When Paul found himself alone, he became conscious of a growing curiosity concerning the stairs in the closet. He opened the door and looked in, and then quietly lifted the scuttle by the ring. He peered down into the darkness, but as the stairs were winding, could discern nothing for more than a half a dozen steps below. He listened, but the house was perfectly quiet, Ah Ben's retreating footsteps having died upon the air. Somehow he half doubted the story which the old man had told him about the original intention of the stairway as a means of escape. It seemed improbable, and dated back to such a remote period that he could not help feeling distrustful. Candle in hand, he commenced to descend, looking carefully where he placed his feet. As everywhere else, the woodwork was worm-eaten, and the timbers set up a dismal creaking under the weight of his body, but he had undertaken to investigate the meaning of this architectural eccentricity, and would not now turn back. On he crept, noiselessly as possible, adown the twisting stairs, carefully looking ahead for pitfalls and unsuspected developments. Once he paused, thinking he heard the distant tread of a foot, but the sound died away, and he resumed his course. Some of the steps were so broken and rotten that extreme caution was necessary to avoid falling. At last he reached the ground and found himself at the bottom of a square well, around the four walls of which the stairs had been built. He was facing a massive door, which occupied one of the sides of the well. Paul tried the lock, but it was so old and rust-eaten that it refused to move. There was no other outlet, and the place was narrow and damp. He looked wistfully at the solitary door, feeling a vague suspicion that it barred the entrance to a mystery, and resolved to return at some future time, when not so harassed with sleepiness and the fatigues of travel, and make another effort to open it. Paul looked above, and as he did so, a gust of air swept down the narrow opening and blew out his light. At the same instant he heard the fall of the scuttle, and realized that he was shut in. Trapped! And by my own cursed curiosity, he muttered, as he commenced groping his way up in the darkness. But it was not so easy as he had supposed. Twice he slipped his foot into a rotten hole, and once the stairs trembled so violently that he thought they were about to fall. Nevertheless, he reached the top, 
as he realized when his head came in contact with the trap door, upon the other side of which he pictured Ah Ben standing with an amused smile. Henley placed his shoulder against the door, and to his amazement found that it opened quite easily. He then procured a light, and having satisfied himself that there had never been the slightest intention to entrap him, the door having simply fallen, he went hurriedly to bed. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline